it's over 9,000! Super Elite Warriors to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Freezer Force on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time, and I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the Bikini. Hey, uh, how long until we get to some sort of civilization? Well, we can't just stop anywhere. Why not? Aren't we back in freezer-controlled space? Yeah, but just because a planet is a Frieza-controlled planet doesn't mean it has a full complement of ships and supplies we can utilize. Wouldn't it make sense to have outposts at the furthest edge of your space that do have those things, though? In an empire that is content with its size and no longer increasing, yes. But Lord Frieza's grasp grows longer and more encompassing with each passing day. The creation of outposts like you're suggesting would be a never-ending process that would also ensure no outposts were ever even finished in the first place. As soon as one neared completion, it would be torn down and need to be moved. Huh. I guess that makes sense. But still, how long until we get to a location where we can restock? What's the hurry now? I already made you use the outer space as your toilet. Yeah, but things like a shower, a more well-equipped ship... Bearing for our next mission, the ability to check on my home planet, those might all be nice to have. Whoever said anything about allowing you to check in on your home planet? It's been literally years since I've done so at this point. I don't even know if my race survived all those bloodline annihilation fists, and you're refusing to let me check on my family? Oh, I never said any such thing in any explicit way. Frieza Force Directive 1.9432b states that all members shall be granted the ability whenever most convenient to contact their home planet and family members. But you said... I just meant that we don't yet know if we have clearance to call your home planet. We'll probably need to undergo some sort of debriefing after our recent adventures and see what we're allowed to discuss and what remains confidential. I don't like hiding things from my family. Then you shouldn't have joined the recruiting branch of Lord Frieza's army. As frontline ambassadors, there are things we have to keep hidden for the safety and security of the galaxy. Secrets we know about various planet locations, weaknesses, defense systems, etc. Yeah, but you and I fighting each other was broadcast galaxy-wide. Everyone already heard it. What secrets could there be? Unfortunately, I don't get to make the call on what is or isn't considered sensitive information. Now, look, we're about an hour or so out from the nearest Frieza Force outpost. Hooray! Wait, an hour? Does that mean... That's right, it's time to dive into today's discussion topic. And today, 
we're going to be talking about Demon King Piccolo, but first we're going to recap four episodes. Episodes 110 through 113. I'm sure Bikini will tell us as we go what each of those is called, because I absolutely absolutely forget. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll start you off with episode 110, which is titled Piccolo Closes In. We start this episode with Goku continuing to get his clock cleaned by King Piccolo. Things aren't looking good for our boy, and Yajirobe doesn't seem interested in lending a hand. Still, he persists. This only seems to raise Piccolo's ire. He unleashes a devastating energy attack, but Goku dodges. Until Piccolo fires the second barrel for a direct hit. With Goku's heart stopped, Piccolo takes one star ball and gloats over his easy victory. He then turns his attention to the other Dragon Balls, which puts Team Turtle Crane directly in his crosshairs. Following Piccolo's expeditious retreat, Yajirobe laments about the grim task of burying Goku when the body twitches. Goku is alive. Yajirobe nurses Goku back to health as best he can, and Goku asks a favor. He needs Yajirobe to take him to Karen Tower. Yajirobe agrees, so long as he gets to eat as much as he wants when he gets there. Meanwhile, Team Turtle Crane have found ball number five. They discuss the inevitability of dealing with Piccolo when they reach one of the other balls, only to find that both are now headed their way. Looks like they're going to have to move up that timetable. Back in Yajirobe's Pinto, Goku calls him out for not helping with King Piccolo, and Yajirobe just flat out admits that he didn't want to die. I could respect that. <laughs> then we get a recap of the legend of Piccolo Daimao from Yajirobe, and they discuss the fact that Piccolo is collecting Dragon Balls. Meanwhile, Team Turtle Crane is preparing for a confrontation. They hide their plane, the Dragon Balls, and formulate a plan to steal the Dragon Balls from King Piccolo and summon the dragon to make their wish while he's distracted. Unfortunately, Piccolo has kind of figured out what's going on and takes steps to foil their plan by literally swallowing both Dragon Balls that he has in his possession. This puts Roshi in an awkward position. Now that they don't have much of a choice other than defeating Piccolo to collect all the Dragon Balls, he kind of like steals himself. Tien's all about catching that smoke, but Roshi is tired of senseless death. He incapacitates Tien. Real quick, hey Roshi, why do you have a canister of knockout gas on you? You you always (laughs) carry that? Uh, Then heads out to confront Piccolo alone, which leads us to episode 111, titled Roshi's Gambit. This episode starts back at Kami House, where the rest of the crew are tracking the progress of Operation Kevorkian on their own radar. They realize the friends are facing off with Piccolo as we speak and fear for their well-being. Back at Ground Zero, Roshi and Piccolo put all their cards on the table, and we learn that this is not the first time Roshi has met Piccolo. There's an epic stare down, but Piccolo makes the first move and draws first blood. Roshi merely dishes out insults. He's struck over and over again, but Roshi's unflinching. Piccolo continues to try and goad some kind of response out of him, but no dice. Then Roshi drops a bombshell. My master was Mutaito-sama. We see panic spring across Piccolo's face. We have a quick cut to Team Pinto, where Goku explains that they need to get to Karen Tower to speak with Korin. Back at the showdown, Roshi taunts Piccolo with a rice cooker, the denshi jar they sealed him in all those years ago. Tien correctly surmises that Master Roshi knows the Mafuba technique. Piccolo drops a brick in his pants, uh, doing Dumekian's poop, and tries to run away, but not fast enough. He's caught in the Mafuba. Roshi manages to capture Piccolo in the spell, but misses the jar when he goes to seal Piccolo for good. No big deal. Just try again, right? Wrong. It would appear that even a miss means that you still die. Roshi shuffles off this mortal coil. Goku kind of has his little force moment. And then with that obstacle out of the way, nothing stops Piccolo from having his Thanos moment. Or is that Thanos having a Piccolo moment? Mm-hmm. Anyway, which leads us into episode 112, titled King Piccolo's Wish. So our boys are going to swoop in and steal the wish like they did with Pilaf, right? Right? 
Also, we start off this episode with some gorgeous, gorgeous art. It's beautiful. The dramatic lighting from Shenlong is pretty intense, and it looks great. Yeah. Uh, the comic crew look on, unsure if their friends have succeeded or if the bad guys have, you know, because the, like, the whole world gets cloudy and dark. So they all know that Piccolo has summoned the dragon, or not necessarily Piccolo, but they know somebody has summoned the dragon. They just don't know who. It's up to Chaozu to complete the wish interception. Piccolo hits him with a different kind of pass and puts an end to the play. He then quickly wishes for his youth, then kills Shenlong for his trouble. Can't have those pesky eternal dragons around to unalive you a year from now. At Kame House, everyone is having a collective anxiety attack on behalf of their friends. Yamcha's unhappy with sitting on the bench, but he'll get used to it. Piccolo's decided <laughs> to make a beeline for King's Castle, where I guess the, the ruler of the world sits? Back on Molar Plains, Tien get, grieves the loss of his best friend and new master. Need to swear revenge, Tien? How about a super secret technique that costs you your life? Meanwhile, Piccolo welches on his deal with Pilaf and kicks him and his henchmen off the airship. At Corrin's Tower, Team Pinto have arrived. Goku's reunited with Upa and Bora, and Team Pilaf finally pulls their heads from their sand. Which brings us to episode 113, Siege on Chao Castle. Okay, so the most evil guy on Earth just won back his youth. Can't get any worse, right? Well, he's on his way to take over the entire planet like 10 minutes later, so yes, it can get worse. To make matters even worse-er, today also happens to be the 20th anniversary of the king's coronation. There's a huge celebration and a delegation of young women from around the, pro the kingdom to welcome him. And who's the redhead with the furry hat? Why, it's Snow, of course. Piccolo, with piano accompaniment, descend from the sky intent on wreaking havoc. At Korin Tower, Goku catches Upa and Bora up on everything that's happened. He explains that Yajirobe will need to carry him to see Korin, but Yajirobe isn't interested in all that physical exertion. So Goku continues to bribe him with the promise of Senzu. They get a boost from Bora, and they're on their way. Back at King's Castle, Piccolo picks up the tempo and begins his assault on the capital. Back on Molar Plains, the, the Kame crew catch up with Tien, and he informs them of his intention to master the Mafuba and give his life, just like Master Roshi. Back at the capital, Piccolo makes an overture to crash the 20th anniversary ce celebration. The army throws everything it can at him, but nothing even leaves a smudge. Piccolo's victory now seems all but complete. We do get some fun shot of Sano's village cheering her on, though, which is kind of nice given all the depression, uh, depressing sights taking place. Fortunately, the boys have reached the top of Korn's Tower by the end of the episode. So these are like good episodes overall. This is where we we're getting a little bit of the the arc does do a, a a smidge of sagging with this batch of episodes and then like the next batch of episodes. Yeah, there's there's a lot that happens and it's all just basically to build up for the next encounter with, between Goku and Piccolo to yeah. to raise the stakes as high as they possibly can. Exactly. And so I think you could, you know, in a in a in a in a better world, a more perfect world, you could probably condense the next, like, between these four and the next four that we're going to talk about. Those eight episodes could probably come down to, like, six. Uh, but they're pretty good episodes. I, I I like these four, I think, a little bit better than the next four. Yeah. I do, like, I really like the, the stuff with Roshi in general. You know, like you said... Him just conveniently having knockout gas is a little bit... Uh, <laughs> it's a little weird. Yeah. I dig all the stuff with, with Piccolo that's happening in these episodes. I really like building this threat up. The I really like, actually, the whole killing the dragon thing. 
especially insofar as like Goku doesn't know. So Goku is, you know, doing everything right now under the presupposition that it doesn't matter what happens to kind of anyone because he could just wish him back. That's true. Yeah. And listen, as as fans of the franchise, we know that there are more wishes to be made by a lot in the future. But, you know, again, put yourself in that frame frame of mind of of this being new at the time and you're like oh my like krillin is dead for real now and master roshi is gone and chaozu is gone and tien is working on a technique that will also make him gone yeah and and this is this is a franchise that you know these are 110 episodes this is a franchise that has not been tremendously afraid to move on from certain things right i mean oolong as basically forgotten at this point except to just kind of exist in the background and make the occasional wisecrack yeah just be uh, comedic from time to time right and and yamcha has been relegated to the sidelines like this is a you know and all those fighters from the first martial arts tournament nam and girin and uh ron fon and all of the bacterian they're all either like dead or you know we've just moved on from caring about them really at this point so yeah this is a franchise that at this point, if you're if this is new, is not afraid to move on from things. One one quick note just about the episodes themselves. King Furry or I think he's like Kikuo or something or Kikuo in in the Japanese, which I think just means like King Furry or King Fluffy or you know something like that. Yeah, I think that's that's how it was translated, yeah. Uh he is modeled and this is it's funny because as soon as you say it you see it for sure he's modeled after teddy roosevelt oh yeah okay that makes perfect sense right (laughs) yeah the big bushy mustache the glasses the the stature yeah no that makes perfect sense yep yep (laughs) i can't believe i didn't see that so we are talking about king piccolo today demon king piccolo in japanese piccolo is called piccolo daimo I hope I did not butcher that too badly. Piccolo is the transliteration of the word piccolo, which in itself in English is a transliteration of the Italian word piccolo. In Italian, it just means small. Uh, we use it to refer to a small flute. Dai means great or large, and the suffix o means king, as we've already seen with ox king being giao, giao, giao mao. <laughs> I think I did that right. Yeah. I apologize. And we've encountered that suffix a few other times. So all told, he's Great King Piccolo, but again, Piccolo means small, so he's Big King Small. Toriyama says he wanted to use a silly name for a scary guy, and for possibly the first time, he calls real attention to it by having the characters in the show admit that it's a silly name. Even Roshi ultimately says it's the only silly thing about Piccolo. Now, in Japan, they call the Christian devil, you know, Lucifer, Satan, or uh, whatever you call him, Daimao, uh, uh, meaning Great Devil. Which has led to some people over the years to think that Piccolo is meant to be the literal devil because of him being called Piccolo Daimao. However, Daimao existed in Japan before the introduction of Christianity, and the word was meant to refer to a demon who ruled over inferior demons. Uh, So Toriyama's intention here obviously was that he wanted to let the readers know this is a powerful demon with many under his command, not the literal Christian devil. Yeah. 
it's just one of those things you know when when something is exported or whatever they they adapted it to their language right yes things get lost in translation as it were exactly piccolo's airship for for its part is admittedly and admittedly by toriyama himself at least partially inspired by the movie castle in the sky which toriyama says awed him so much he felt a thrill when he saw it despite not watching very much anime i love that movie I don't know if you've ever seen it. I have not. It's a very good... I think it's actually not technically a Ghibli movie. I think it's like the... I may be wrong. It's either the first Ghibli movie or the last movie Miyazaki did before establishing Ghibli. Okay. And so it's a very early Miyazaki movie. It's just got that Miyazaki style to it completely. All that whimsy. Yes, uh, but 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 it also has that that like kind of sense of beauty in the law lo- in loss and beauty in things that no longer exist because it's like mm-hmm. at the end of the movie towards the end of the movie they get to the castle in the sky and it's like abandoned and derelict and but it's like got that great sense of melancholy to it where you know that bitter sweetness to it it's it's awesome highlights of a movie that has a lot of really good parts to it too really good movie definitely recommend it now it's actually technically pilaf's airship right and i think does it say that on the side does it yeah it's got pilaf stenciled right on the side yeah but given how piccolo treats pilaf we can basically just call it piccolo's airship I mean, he, he does eventually kick him off, so possession is nine-tenths of the law, right? <laughs> uh, Piccolo's face, to get into his design, and we've got more about his actual design towards the end of this, and it's going to dominate kind of the most of the conversation here. But Piccolo's face is somewhat similar to that of Toriyama's longtime editor, Kazuhiko Torishima. And Torishima himself even says, quote, You can always tell who was editor at the time by the enemy characters. After you'd been doing it a while, you'd appear as an enemy. Toriyama, for his part, admits to seeing the resemblance, but doesn't admit that it was intentional. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) And we'll have to keep our eyes peeled in the future for who else Toriyama, quote-unquote, accidentally makes a villain in the future. You know, I, I... I don't know what his other editors look like, but was one of his editors like Dr. Giraud? <laughs> like, I could see that. Probably probably, probably Android 19 would be my guess. <laughs> so we'll have to we'll have to just kind of keep our eyes peeled to see if we see, you know, anyone else's face uh, as he transitions between editors. The kanji on Piccolo's front, on the front of his shirt, is Ma. That's the, what the kanji reads, which is evil spirit or demon, as in Mafuba or Mazoku, as we've already discussed in our episodes on Piccolo's children and the evil containment wave. So, you know, if you've been keeping up with us, you've you've heard about Ma. If you haven't, that's like, that's not even two episodes ago. So, so take a swing back and, and listen. Toriyama says he decided to make Piccolo green somewhat randomly after coming up with the design and goes on to say that Piccolo is a unique character up to that point because up until that point he 
being Toriyama, had always brought in a little bit of gag manga to his villains in, in design. He says, quote, Even though there were bad guys, they still had a humorous aspect to them somewhere. I had never drawn someone so evil before, so it felt very fresh. Unquote. And he goes on to say that the introduction of Piccolo sets the stage for future serious villains to come, changing the direction of Dragon Ball itself. And I absolutely agree i think we talked about that a little bit at the outset of this arc is that this is the first real world ending serious threat yeah and and piccolo is the first like truly evil villain where there's no jokes made about piccolo and i i kind of compared that to like Ashiro Honda's take when he did King Kong versus Godzilla, where it's a comedy and there's a lot of jokes, but not about the monsters. Right. And to, even to your point, when with the characters admitting that it's a silly name, but it's the only thing that's silly about him. Yeah. Right. It's you know what else? Because I, I thought of this as I was um, as I was listening back to that episode is it's also similar to somewhat, somewhat, not not not. I don't I don't want people thinking I'm drawing these these uh lines too too equivalently. But like the way the Abbott and Costello films treated like the the vampires and werewolves and like out when Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman and stuff, mm-hmm. there's a ton of humor and those are flat out comedies, but sure. they don't clown on the monsters themselves. It's more like their reactions to the monster. Yes. Doing that and doing that well is not always the easiest thing. Sure. I think that's that's definitely a tight rope to to try and balance on. And I think Piccolo does it well. Yeah, I, I agree. And speaking of being a monster, so we all know Piccolo wants to kill all martial artists because only they can lock him away again. This is a cultural parallel to Taoist, Shintoist, and Buddhist priests as, remember, the martial artists of the dragon world are inspired by these historical, mythical, and entertainment figures of Asian culture. It's a demon attacking priests before they can strike him down again. In the film Shaolin Martial Arts and from 1974, uh, it features a really similar plot where a Qin Dynasty official seek to destroy Shaolin monks whose master is a hermit who has his students perform unorthodox training like constantly catching fish barehanded for speed or you know chopping down trees barehanded for strength. The main heroes get revenge by ascending to higher levels after some of their friends are killed and taking on the enemy in a final confrontation. In the Japanese, there's a chant of Pokopen whenever Piccolo births an egg. This is taken from a Japanese children's game that's like a game of tag mixed with 7-Up where one person becomes an Oni uh, through a game of rock, paper, scissors, then has to stare at the wall while the others sing the chant and poke the Oni in the back. And then when they're done, the Oni has to guess who was the last person to poke them. If they guess right, that person becomes the Oni and the game repeats. Uh, but Pokopen is also a racist slur in Japanese derived from the Chinese word buben, which means prohibited or forbidden and directly translates as don't talk to this body. It is a demeaning word for Chinese people, but then becomes a the name of a game where children pretend to be chi- a Chinese person poking a demon. Maybe because only someone as stupid as a Chinese person would ever dare poke a demon, I guess is the logic there. It doesn't yes. make any sense, but kids games, I guess they don't make sense in general. 
Uh, and the racial insensitivity is lost over time. Sort of. <laughs> uh, this is very similar to Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo, uh, which also kind of has some pretty dark uh, origins. Yeah. It's all unlike – it's all – Likely a na naive mishap, as most Japanese people aren't really aware of the racial undertones of the game. And Toriyama's just trying to have fun associating a game where children pretend to be a demon with a demon giving birth to his children. If it's not a mishap, then we have to wonder if it's perhaps Toriyama being exceptionally clever by having his character who's associated with the subhuman Burakumen uh, using a chant that means subhuman. And we're going to talk about the Burakumen in a second here. Because if you notice, you look at Piccolo's design, you might notice that he only has four fingers. But that's only if you are... How do I want to phrase this? I guess jumping ahead of where we would normally be and looking at the manga already. right? Because we do the anime and then the manga. Because in the manga, or in the anime rather, Piccolo has five fingers. This is in small, in at least some part because... Japanese and Chinese people, the, the reason he has four fingers is because Japanese and Chinese people associate the number four itself with bad luck. The words death and four are homophones in Japanese, so it's best to avoid associations with four. This makes it, this makes Piccolo easier to understand as a bringer of death for a Japanese audience. Now is where we get into a topic that's a bit of a sticky wicket, but you know, welcome to Final Forum. We do not shy away from this stuff. The second reason that, that Piccolo might have four fingers, or at least what I'll say is the, the reason the anime staff changes it to five fingers <laughs> is because of the potential association with a group of people in Japan known as the Barakumin. Now, uh, we've talked before about how Japan is an extremely homogenous nation. Something like 90% of people who live in Japan are ethnically Japanese. So when you live in a nation that is, and, and now go back historically, it's probably larger than 95%, right? Because you don't get a whole lot of white people in Japan in like the 1700s. They had a pretty, pretty strict isolationist policy. <laughs> so when you are in a greater than 90% ethnically similar country uh, it's gonna sound bad how do you oppress people <laughs> <laughs> you're right that does sound terrible uh you 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 can't do it along racial lines like is done historically in many many cultures <laughs> you you have to do it along class or caste lines, and Japan had feudalism in its, you know, in the Edo period and, and even the pre-Edo period. So the Barakumin are an ethnically Japanese class of people in Japan who are considered of an inferior social status. They have the same language, customs, and physical appearances as other Japanese, but they come from a lower caste based on social status and descent. This is a holdover from Japanese feudalism, which dates back beyond the 1800s, uh, but it, it ended in like the late 1800s. So they, the Barakumin, I, I don't know the names of the other four castes, but there were like four castes of people 
in Japanese feudalism and the Barakumin were actually outside of that caste system. And because they were outside of the caste system, they were similar to like the untouchables of the Indian caste system, right? They were, they were, they were lower than low. They were the lowest possible class. Yeah, gotcha. live in live in poverty, get only the worst jobs, treated horribly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes. And due to due to their class as outcasts and even lower than outcasts, they were associated with kigar or kigare, which is translates as pollution or filth and meant like dirty work. They were forced to work in graveyards, landfills, slaughterhouses as butchers, dealing with disease, etc. Things like that. Right? Your 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 undesirable work. Mm-hmm. Officially, this caste system was abolished during the Meiji Restoration in 1869. But similar to slavery in the U.S. and how that spun into the world of Jim Crow and legalized oppression and segregation and, uh, you know, eventually the civil rights movements. I mean, slavery ended in eight, in 1860, 1864 or 66. When was the, the Emancipation Proclamation? 18- in the 1865, I think. <laughs> in the 1860s. <laughs> I can say that confidently. You would think we would do this kind of research ahead of time. <laughs> this is just a minor parallel. Uh, and, and you know, it wasn't until the 1960s that we had the Civil Rights Movement. And that that history of oppression still affects social discourse in America today. You can have your own opinions about whether it actually affects black people or white people or anyone, but it absolutely affects social discourse and the way we handle certain types of media and depictions. You cannot argue about that. And it is 2023 and slavery ended in the 1860s. This discrimination, this this the stigma around the Barakumin still exists in Japan today. From the early times of the official end of the caste system in like the 1870s saw riots that killed dozens of Barakumin when they would like dare to go into bars and try and order drinks and things to more recent times in the 2000s, which saw laws finally being passed. I think in 2009, there was a law that was finally passed that says a person's birth certificate and family registration no longer needed to be affixed to an ancestral home address. That was a whole thing that they used to do in Japan. So your birth certificate would say what your ancestral homeland was. And if it was associated with the Barakumin, that was like, not good. <laughs> you could you could look forward to a life of getting worse jobs and and not being promoted at work and things like that because your birth certificate would say that you were from an a uh, an area that was that was traditionally and historically of Barakumin ancestry. So these people have been discriminated against and targeted by other Japanese throughout the history of Japan. Uh, the big obvious difference between blacks in America and Barakumin in Japan is obviously race. So it really is hard to draw any explicit exact parallel to anything in the United States because we do tend to be divided more along. Uh, racial lines and and visible things that you can see the differences between people and also maybe like religious lines but like the barakumin 
also are like Shintoists and Buddhists and and Taoists. So they have the same they have the same everything. They have the same culture, ethnicity, language, and religion, but they are just considered worse because of their ancestry. So we don't really have a true parallel and equivalency in the United States. The Barakumin have been generationally poor, dating back to the Edo period, and because of the work they usually associated with it, with, became depicted in media in Japan over decades and centuries as being stereotypically inbred, flawed people with birth defects, bad teeth, poor skin, or missing appendages due to the hazardous nature of the work they were associated with. So, like, in Japan, if you're, like, an amputee, you're you're like looked down upon because it's it's considered that you would be a potential barakumin if you were missing an appendage that's where if you've if you've seen kill bill volume one when the bride tells everyone to leave the limbs that she's taken off of them that's like a massive insult that line makes a lot more sense now so now specifically flashing a four-fingered gesture at someone in japan like if you throw up a hand at someone and you keep like your ring finger down it's it's seen by a lot of people as calling that person that you're throwing that to as a member of the barakumin and you know as i've mentioned already they've been historically discriminated against for generations and and just a few examples of that in the mid 70s it was found that private employers were maintaining lists of traditionally Baraku names, common locations and addresses, and places of birth in order to filter applicants and deny employment to individuals. And that's like 1975. Uh, this this drove the Barakumin and people who were suspected of being Barakumin to further undesirable work, uh, and often, unfortunately, into the Yakuza, which is the Japanese mob, which just, of course, further drives the negative stereotypes of them being undesirable, nasty, seedy it's, people. It's almost like discrimination against people with generalizations becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. <laughs> and this continued until – and I would say there's there's probably a certain extent to which it still continues – but, I mean, as recently as 2001, there were two main candidates to lead the Japanese Liberal Democratic Party, which is, that's like the party of Shinzo Abe. That's the, the party of the Prime Minister of Japan. I mean, Shinzo Abe is dead now, but he, you know, he was in the Liberal Democratic Party. And and these two, they're the two main candidates to become the next premier of Japan. And they were Tao Aso and Hiromu Nonaka. And during a meeting in which Nonaka was not present, his ancestry as being from Barakumin descent was exposed, and this this Aso was like, we don't want someone who's a Baraku to be the next prime minister, do we, everyone? And Nonaka wound up withdrawing his candidacy. As, rec as recently as 2009, Google Maps was being used to pinpoint Baraku locations, like you could overlay some filter onto google maps that would show you you know i think the idea of google maps was kind of like a, hey let's you know it's an interesting thing <laughs> uh but it was obviously then being used by various hate groups to target the barakumin yikes so 
So they had to take that out of Google Maps. <laughs> now, is any of this Toriyama's intention with Piccolo? I would say almost assuredly not, because we know he doesn't really think that deeply behind a lot of the things he's doing. He probably was thinking, A, this will make him just look more non-human, because four fingers versus five, and B, aha, four in Japan is death, it's it's nasty, like four is bad, uh, but... Like a lot of reactions to media, the view of Piccolo with four fingers in Japan was seen as possibly being linked to the Barakumin. So we see this happen in media all the time, where sure. it doesn't really matter what your intention is, you make a faux pas. We see we see legitimate ones where we're where we're constantly like, I can't I can't believe that like Walmart thought that was okay to put on a shirt, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I can't think of like a specific example of that. And maybe I wouldn't want to repeat that <laughs> on the podcast anyways, but like you see that happen like every single year, um, or, a or like a school does a, a black history month lunch menu and it's like fried chicken and watermelon. And you're like, guys, <laughs> who, who approved this? What are you thinking? And so I think. The anime staff didn't want to invite those comparisons. There's also like harsher rules. I don't even want to say laws because laws would imply that there's like a legal consequence. There's just more like faux pas and social pressure to not depict Barakumin in media. And films over time have been suppressed either by the Japanese government or the studios who made them because of connections to the Barakumins. One of the most notable examples that I know of from my world and things that I know is the Toho film Half Human. And this is a movie directed by Ishiro Honda, the guy who directed the original Godzilla movies, several other Godzilla movies, mm -hmm. uh, the guy who created a method for capturing underwater footage in Japan. He was like the first person to ever do that. He made a movie called Half Human, which actually, that's just the translation of the title. It's more about an abominable snowman. Okay. So, <laughs> so it's 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 about, you know, this this abominable snowman who is sort of terrorizing the countryside and our main characters come across a village of Barakumin during the film. And aside from one of them who winds up kind of working with the main characters, who's just like a pretty girl, they're almost all depicted as like having missing fingers or uh, mental disabilities or like missing teeth. Uh, they, the, the extras behave as if they have like Down syndrome or uh, cerebral palsy, things like that. They're just like, it's like an entire background character work of like, you're just like cringing the entire time if you know uh, this history of the, the Barakumin. It's, it's kind of like watching Gone with the Wind today and being like, ooh. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, and this is where we get into like, I think. I think this stuff should be out there. Like, I think I absolutely think Gone with the Wind should stay out there. And I think I don't know who owns Gone with the Wind, but, I, you know, there's been a lot of releases over the years 
and I think even these days, like when you see Gone with the Wind air on like Turner Classic movies, it's almost always bracketed on one side or the other by like a featurette that will talk about the reasons why it's depictions of of black people was not okay but also then still kind of defend why the film is historically important and worth viewing and that's what i think all of this stuff should be it should exist it should exist with a disclaimer that says this is why this is not okay this this was not okay then it's definitely not okay now but it was a product of its time and let's look at why it's not okay and talk about the reality of things and talk about how this was hurtful to people, but keep it out there so we can learn from it. Yeah, exactly. Taking something where, where, uh, you know, these studios either made a mistake with these depictions or, or just to, to create an opportunity for people to be better in the future. Exactly. The Japanese stance has been to suppress depictions of the Barakumin, especially these like, more unsavory ones uh and understandable (laughs) and yeah obviously and and they don't they don't but they don't want anyone to see them they want to suppress them they don't want to talk about the prejudices they don't want to talk about the barakumin they don't want to teach about them they want to attempt to not promote the idea of there being at any point state-ordained discrimination and they want to try to present a more united front of japan as a whole you see a, a parallel to this happening in the United States right now with the subject of critical race theory. The best faith reading of which is that people are just uncomfortable with these discussions. But again, for my part, this stuff needs to be talked about more because a, the smarter you are, the better you are. I think just in general, the more, you know, about things, the, the more educated you are and able to speak to those things. But the more you know about other people and specifically about their struggles, the more likely you are to be empathetic towards their problems. Sure. I, I, I think it was uh, I think it was Mark Twain that said that uh, travel is the best disinfectant for ignorance or something like that. That sounds like a Twainism, like a <laughs> yeah. I'm probably butchering it horribly, but that's the spirit. Yeah. There's this. We're, this is again, this is where we get in. This is like a sticky wicket of a, of a conversation. There, there are people out there who think that by acknowledging that others have struggles, it somehow diminishes or forces their, them to diminish their own struggles or their achievements. Right. And, it's it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that because someone else struggled you didn't or because someone else struggled you didn't earn what you've gotten. It just is that that like those two things are not what is it? Like not I, mutually exclusive or mutual, whatever. Like you can earn something, you can have problems and someone else can. The way I always like to spin it is nobody wants to win gold the oppression olympics. <laughs> yes it's okay to talk about this stuff and 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 you know especially when we get into the like this is where it like it frustrates me so bad in the united states is 
once you get into like these these things where like it's we have such obvious differences, we should talk about them more. We should celebrate them more. And I I understand like I was I was raised as a you know we've 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 broken shtick on this show a few times and I'll do it again here uh, as two cis hetero white dudes. Uh, I was raised for sure by parents who were like, I don't see color. I don't see race. And like, I, I understand that mindset and that mentality. And I think it's flawed. Exactly. And where it, where it starts to become a little bit more malicious is as time goes on people's opinions on these things change slightly other people offer maybe a better way to do things so instead of just completely trying to ignore race as a factor in anything maybe it's better to acknowledge that it does impact people's lives and to just try and be conscious of that when it's appropriate right yeah it's it's a it's a flawed mentality it it because it erases people's differences and it tries to put us all like it tries too much to put us all on the same level. And sure, we're just not, you know, my anyone, any parent out there, I feel can can empathize with this. Everyone is a parent out there at some point has done something, I'm sure, for their kids that they were like, boy, when I was your age, I would have been so grateful to have this and you are just taking it for granted right there that's the that's the that's the difference yeah because my my natural thought process then continues as well yeah isn't that kind of the point of improving society yes exactly (laughs) but that's also the problem that's that kind of right there is like a microcosm of the problem of i don't see color is when you wipe away everyone's differences you are trying to treat everyone the same when you shouldn't be. Yes, maybe, maybe, like I, I took my kids out to an arcade, and my parents would never have done that on a day that wasn't like a special day when I was a kid. Yeah. I just did it on a Saturday. So then you can't treat my kids the way I was treated as a kid, because we we're growing up in different environments sure and and also uh when you talk especially about like differences of race within the country their race has an impact or their ethnicity has an impact on how they were raised the kinds of things they were exposed to the cultural relevance of those things a little bit of a, a a background information on me i i'm in a biracial marriage and while my wife and i grew up in this country her background caused certain aspects of pop culture to be more important to her than they were to me. And it's not necessarily a race thing. It's mostly primarily a difference between like just our parents, for instance, Mm -hmm. Um, like what kinds of TV shows we were allowed to watch or what kind of music we were allowed to listen to. Those things impact who you become as a person later on in life. And it's maybe just a good idea to keep that in mind when you meet new people. Exactly. This is erasing this history, I think, does nothing for us. And that's now you get into a whole separate conversation (laughs) 
yeah. About, we, we don't like, we don't want to go completely down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to go down I I'll tell you right like the 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 rabbit hole that I immediately went down with the race history thing of like tearing down statues. Um F those statues, tear them down. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you on that one. They were they were put up in the 60s as a reminder to the black community of who was actually in charge and I feel like that doesn't offer any kind of useful history to anybody. Uh, throw them in like a the museum you, if you want. Yeah, throw them in a museum. Talk about talk about the situation of why they were put up. To me, that's that's way more useful than than complaining on social media about somebody deciding or some municipality deciding to remove these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the like. I I jokingly say f them and tear them down, but my real thought is like put them in a museum. You know, it's it's the same. It, it come it it's the same thing with like book bannings and things, and people get get all huffy and defensive then, and they're like, "Well, you know, I guess we should just allow all books into schools. We should put Mein Kampf into schools." And you're like, "Um, in the right context, maybe because you yeah. can't, you cannot. <laughs> I'm sorry." You can't equate Mein Kampf to Of Mice and Men. <laughs> of Mice and Men. Slightly different things going on there. Of, uh, and strip away the, the, the ethics of the messages of the two. Of Mice and Men is a fictional story that is using fiction to have a, like a metaphor in it. Mein Kampf is a non-fiction book. Yeah. So, so yeah, keep it in a school, but, but contextualize it in the right way and sure. put it in the nonfiction section and have red flags and warnings all over. Like that's, that's what I'm, I think all this stuff needs to be out there. It needs to exist and people need to have it and they need to have it properly contextualized. Throw a disclaimer on, on half human and talk about, Throw a, throw a special feature. We're in the day and age too, where like special features exist on the streaming versions of things too. Now, yeah, throw a special feature on Half Human. That's like a even a fifteen minute. What we've been doing, but with like someone who's you know who actually got, knows what they're talking about. Someone who's got a degree <laughs> in it, <laughs> and talk about it. Throw throw a disclaimer on. Disney, throw a disclaimer on Song of the South and release it. Even though yeah. I don't think that movie's all that good. <laughs> no, it's it's horrible, but like I mean, you know, if people want to claim that that statues are history, I mean, I can't think of movies outside of that context. I think yeah. movies are history too. So I mean, if you guys want to have your statues, okay, fine. Let's put them in a museum. But then let's also put stuff like this there next to it as well. Like, let's contextualize this stuff. Yeah. So that people get a a, a, a more full understanding of the history of this country. I watched Song of the South not that long ago, and I was like, yeah, it's just, like, even as a movie, it's just not that good. I, I don't think I've seen it. It's got some honest. good songs in it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Zippity Doodah is a very good song. I did hear that song loud as a kid. That is true. And I would have to look it up if there was some sort of like 
because I know I know Song of the South has been under like taboo. Uh, we don't talk about it for quite a while. Yeah, but I do very much remember as a kid seeing on TV, and maybe it was on a VHS. I don't know, but I remember seeing uh, Brer Rabbit and Brer Bear. Yeah, Brer Rabbit and Brer Bear and Brer Fox are the uh, Brer Fox and Bear are the antagonist of the animated sequences of Song of the South. And then the rabbit is always trying to get one over on them or whatever. That's right. They're the ones that were trying to, was it trick them to go into the briar patch? Something like that. But I remember seeing those animated segments a lot as a kid. So either, either someone somewhere in my family at some point taped Song of the South off of uh, before it was put under ban, mm-hmm. or Disney like adapted just those segments at some point to air as part of like I don't know was it like the Wonderful World of Disney or something that they would do like Disney the Walt Disney anthology series I think so. Mm-hmm. I definitely remember seeing those things as as a kid. Again, I just think if you bring this stuff up around and you contextualize it for people, it's fine. You're going to get some you are going to get and this is cuz it's the internet. This is the age the age of like I'm sure if you we ever garner yeah. if we ever garner enough listen, listenership, this episode is going to get a lot of hate. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. You have to weather that storm. It's the age of the internet. Someone is always going to hate you, and someone is always going to talk bad about you. If you bring back Song of the South, even with a disclaimer, you'll get some people saying, that's not enough. This thing shouldn't be around. And then you get some people saying, it doesn't even need a disclaimer. What are they doing? So you, you piss off half the people right there anyways. <laughs> yeah, but, just, by take, just by picking a firm stance on something, you're going to piss off a lot of people. But just just deal with it, you know, just I I like to look at it as an opportunity, like like if we ever got blowback for this episode, which it's very possible we might. um, Me personally, I'd be open to listening to complaints because how would I get better at talking about this stuff if I don't listen to people who who have important things to say or or, well ration complaints uh, yeah sure you know well yeah obviously as long as it's it's being done in good faith but you know i I see it as an opportunity to learn and be better right take a stance yeah put it out there let people let people make up their own minds about stuff and and yeah i just i i'm i'm not a fan of censorship and i i will say though i guess ultimately we should be happy that someone on the anime team made that connection and decided to add another finger on Piccolo's hand in the anime because the possibility that someone somewhere at some point would have seen this evil character with four fingers and said that's an insensitive portrayal of Barakumin and then Dragon Ball is censored out of existence. That would not be a world in which I would be very happy to be living. That would be rough. So, 
Yeah, avoiding controversy is the name of the game when it comes to building a multimedia empire. And someone on the anime team decided at some point, let's give Piccolo five fingers. Let's avoid the controversy altogether. It's a pretty good call. It's. <laughs> I know there is a joke in the in the manga because Piccolo is typically drawn with only four fingers. At one point, he tells Goku, you only have five seconds to live or five minutes to live or this fight will only last five seconds, something like that. And when he does it, he holds up five fingers on one hand and there is like an actual asterisk in the panel. And then Toriyama has a little insert note that says, oh, look, he grew an extra finger just for this joke. (laughs) (laughs) And then from then on, he's drawn with four fingers again. I think that's actually pretty funny. I think that was probably a, um, a, this is where you get into, I think Toriyama doesn't think this stuff through enough to have thought of that connection. Yeah, because it's more, he, it's more ignorance, not maliciousness. He he clearly didn't even think it through enough to just say, oh, you have four seconds to live or four minutes. <laughs> uh, he drew a character who he had been drawing with four hands with five or with four fingers with five and was probably like, ah, oh, crap. Um, I don't got time to redo this. Let me just make a joke out of it. <laughs> like, so that's that's the Barakumin. It's a it's a sticky wicket of a topic, but I think it's, I think it's really interesting, right? This is all stuff that I would have known because of how much I pay attention to, uh, monster movies and kaiju films and half human is a, is sort of a kaiju film. It's, it's got really like the, the other shame of that movie being under studio imposed ban. It's not that good of a movie, but the Yeti suits used in the movie are actually really, really good. If you've ever seen the original 1962 King Kong versus Godzilla and you're like, oh, my God, this this Kong looks like hot garbage. Uh, <laughs> clearly, clearly suits and Toho just couldn't do like a convincing ape. Stow that and go like look up the the suit from half human it's fantastic i don't know what happened between 1955 when this half human came out and 1962 when they made king kong versus godzilla and messed up that suit real real bad <laughs> but they were capable <laughs> i'm going to go with budget i'm not sure what it was i really don't have any idea cuz king kong versus godzilla had a for the type of movie it was a reasonable budget um, so who knows exactly what happened? Uh, they the, probably spent that all on like miniature city buildings and stuff though. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> but so I would have known about this, but like, I think it's really interesting to think of potentially someone who wouldn't have known anything about this and comes across this episode because they're a Dragon Ball fan and learning about this. And then you get a whole bunch of new context to, for all kinds of other things that that you might have encountered over like i said a, a somewhat ubiquitous example of like the bride and kill bill mhm yeah i had no idea that that line was was supposed to be like a uh, a cultural insult i just thought it was her being a badass <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it maybe that's the intention too is that it's just her being a badass but there's that layer to it you sure. know that's one of those we whether you intend certain things or not, they can be there sometimes. Um, 
and and yeah there's just that that additional layer to it for uh for a, a japanese viewer of like oh someone who gets their like hand cut off would be considered a pot- potential barakumin because they would have lost it in a slaughterhouse accident <laughs> yeah um because that's like the that's the stigma and the stereotype is that they would like lose digits and stuff in slaughterhouses and butcher shops and things dangerous work yes so so that is that is we you know we got this far into the piccolo saga without talking really about king piccolo and that's because there was other stuff to discuss um (laughs) but that's king piccolo that's a an additional layer to him that i had as a person who had only ever seen the anime had no idea who would have thought there would be cultural relevance in a cartoon it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that's that's demon king piccolo he's a great character though he really is big king small i can respect the uh the pun (laughs) okay how much longer now Oh, take an hour, subtract however long we just talked, adjust for editing. Editing? We've been over this. These episodes are edited on the fly by Frieza Force Communications personnel to ensure we stay within broadcast requirements. So it's possible that nothing we've said has aired to anyone. Nonsense, recruits. We spend a lot of time praising Lord Frieza. Certainly that gets through unscathed. Yeah, but what about all these deep, borderline philosophical discussions we're having about the culture and mentality behind the Dragon Ball universe? At the very least, Lord Frieza's probably hearing it, since he requested we do it. An audience of one? What's the point of that? When he's the unquestioned lord and master of the known universe? Hmm. Alright, fair point. Anyway, hopefully we reach the outpost soon. I definitely need to stretch my legs and take a shower. I think that would do us both good. We'll take our leave of you here, listeners. Will we get a hot shower and a nice meal? Will we be fully equipped and ready to leave by the time our next episode airs? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. 